Welcome to our social landscape. I'm J.R. Woodward. Thoughts on the coronavirus, which was originally published March 12, 2020. From time to time, I will add a mini post to my blog, quick thoughts on something that pops up in our social landscape that I want to briefly address. The coronavirus pandemic has been dominating the news in recent days, with President Trump delivering an Oval Office address blaming Europe, except for the UK for some unexplained reason, for the spread of the virus. At different times, the government has also blamed China and the Democrats, while paradoxically minimizing the importance of the outbreak and the difficulties in containing it. Discussing it with an older sociology colleague, we agreed that neither of us have seen anything like this in our lifetime. Professional sports teams and the NCAA canceling major events, schools closing, cruises and flights being suspended, etc. As I write this, my college still plans to have classes meet as usual, as do the local public schools. So my six-year-old son and I will go to our respective houses of higher learning on Monday, as usual. There are multiple ways to analyze what's occurring in the U.S. and globally regarding this virus, and I would like to elucidate a sociological view here, since my field typically employs a structural and institutional rather than individualized approach. I'll start by sharing an anti-sociological quote from Rudy Gobert, the NBA Utah jazz player who first tested positive for the coronavirus, which contributed to the NBA suspending the rest of the season. Gobert admitted to being cavalier about the virus, which certainly does not make him an anomaly, and stated, quote, The first and most important thing is I would like to publicly apologize to the people I may have endangered. At the time, I had no idea I was even infected, end quote. Undoubtedly, Gobert, an all-star who was respected in the league, is sincere in his apology, but it's difficult to understand why someone would apologize for something they did not know about. Additionally, and much more importantly, it sets himself up and anyone else with the virus to be a perpetrator. This then feeds the common narrative influenced by the country of origin of the virus that individual people are the problem and their personal behavior necessarily is therefore both the obstacle and the solution. Rather, the spread of any disease is a function of political and economic forces which determine how the illness will be viewed and treated based in part on who is suffering from it. As such, the solution is necessarily political, not based strictly on individual behaviors. The U.S. has millions of people without health insurance and millions more underinsured, meaning they cannot afford to go to the doctor even with insurance. Many of these folks work in fields that affect the health of everyone else, the food and beverage industry, child care centers, housekeeping, etc., When exposed to the coronavirus, as they surely will be, they are the least likely to be able to afford medical care. This is no accident. The corporate sector has historically and consistently opposed government mandates on sick leave. The owners of Olive Garden and Longhorn, for example, have for years fought expansion of medical care for their workers, only recently backpedaling in the face of intensified public scrutiny. Undoubtedly, we would benefit from health care being available to our entire citizenry, regardless of income. Yet the government's response to the virus has avoided this conclusion. Instead of blaming other countries or the Democratic Party or individual people who are not even aware they carry the virus, we should focus national efforts on taking care of those who are precluded from access to healthy living. 
This entails putting aside partisan discussions, recognizing that all of us benefit when the most vulnerable benefit. Welcome to our social landscape. I'm J.R. Woodward. This is Corona, Part 2, originally published March 23rd, 2020. Some things I have been reading, hearing, and pondering. For posterity's sake, we're in the midst of an unprecedented time in the life of anyone walking the planet. In the past week, the U.S. has restricted international and domestic travel, and groups larger than 10 have been banned. In Florida, bars, nightclubs, and restaurants have been ordered closed by the governor. In Duval County, all beaches have been closed. All of this in the past week. Florida has not yet called for a residential lockdown, though an increasing number of states have, and Florida is likely not far from doing so. The logic behind these restrictions is to flatten the curve, a term so frequently regurgitated now as to render it almost meaningless. Anything is okay as long as it flattens the curve. I do understand the idea, articulated nicely in a recent New York Times op-ed. If we could freeze everyone in place exactly where they are for the next 14 days, we would be in the clear. But that's not possible, so what is? What is realistic? And what are the impacts of these policies? And what is the objective reality, not just the subjective suggestions? Depending on the news channel you follow or the particular person or department in the federal government you listen to, we are either A, heading towards Armageddon, or B, generally safe as long as we use caution and common sense. Regardless of where one falls on the doomsday clock, a larger issue for me is the concern about these policies impacting the country going forward. J.R. McNatt told me, Quote, trillions of dollars, millions of jobs, and millions of students are being upended by this. The impact is years-long and life-altering. It seems like we would want a better understanding of the benefits of these restrictive policies. End quote. Certainly no one would argue against health and safety, but at what cost? In the long term, what determines the overall health of our population? As I have written in previous posts, we cannot separate economic and social health from physical health. Innumerable people are going to be without jobs and health care as businesses close. Parks and other healthy spaces are closing, narrowing outlets for people to cope with this epidemic and remain in a positive physical and mental state. What are these people to do? What impact will this widespread recession have on national resources, mental health, and our ability to create opportunity going forward. My brother is a long-tenured member of the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, and he fears the increase in domestic incidents as people are holed up in isolation without work and healthy outlets. Can we say these COVID-19 safety measures are really going to keep us safe in the long run? I hope so, but I'm not convinced. Many of you have probably read that some other nations, particularly European and Scandinavian nations, have taken more extreme measures to limit public interaction that might spread the virus. The difference is that most of those nations have much larger social safety nets than the U.S., 
So keeping people home in Denmark, for example, where they are isolated and maintain their jobs or receive comparable remuneration from the government makes much more sense than here. These are political issues. There is no such thing as a non-political pandemic. And America should balance a respect for life with a respect for life. You've been listening to Thoughts on the Coronavirus, Parts 1 and 2. And the song is called Finding My Way by Matthew Halsall. Thanks for listening. <laughs>